Back in 2003, I was doing college ministry with a church in Oklahoma, and my wife and I took about 20 college students to a passion conference called One Day 03. This uh, was an outdoor event uh, on a private 400-acre ranch just outside of Sherman, Texas. Louis Giglio, who I know many of you know who that is, he's a very well-known Christian leader in our country. Well, he's the founder and director of the passion conferences, and he was leading this One Day 03 gathering. And so we gathered these 20 uh, college students from our church and we loaded up a trailer full of camping supplies and we we went out to Sherman, Texas and we alongside of about 50,000 other young adults between the ages of of 18 and 26, we camped out into this field for about 36 hours. And while we were out there, we were led in worship by David Crowder and Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin. And we were taught by guys like Louis Giglio and Kirk Cameron and Beth Moore and John Piper and many others. If you can imagine a very holy, spirit-filled version of Woodstock, if you can kind of visualize that, then you kind of have an impression of what this one day 03 Passion Conference was all about in this uh, field out there in Sherman, Texas. I mean, there was a sea of people for as far really as the eye could see. It was kind of overwhelming. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you are standing side by side, worshiping God with 50,000 plus very uh, motivated, on fire Christians. Have you ever had that experience before? Let me tell you, it's something extremely powerful to get to experience that. And it's something that I've thought back on many times over the years. And I remember thinking back um, at that time, as we were standing there with 50,000 plus people worshiping God, I remember thinking, Is this just a little preview of what it will be like in heaven one day when we are all gathered together to worship the Lord? You know, as I've thought about that over the years and as I've grown to learn and and understand the book of Revelation, I've come to the conclusion that the worship that we did in that field in Sherman, Texas, with 50,000 other Christians, does not even come close to what it will be like in heaven when we are all gathered together around the throne of God. You know, in fact, John, who is the author of the book of Revelation, he is the only one that's ever been, been granted access or a sneak peek or just a glimpse behind the curtain of, of what heaven will be like. And John, what we learn in Revelation is he tried to do everything within his power and with his understanding of of his words and vocabulary, he tried to write down all the things that he was seeing. And I think if John were here today, he'd probably admit that he even had great difficulty coming up with just the right words to describe what he's seeing. I mean, can you imagine trying to describe something that just just on its visual blows your mind away and then trying to figure out what words words that you own and know that can in any way, shape, or form describe what it is you're seeing. Shane Wood says that the book of Revelation is language being pushed to the breaking point. And I love his description of that. It's language being pushed to the breaking point. I think that's what John is experiencing. He gets a sneak peek of heaven and he's doing the best he can to try to write down in a descriptive way 
what he is seeing. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and please open up to Revelation chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, Revelation 4 and chapter 5. And while you're finding that, let me just quickly refresh your memory of what is happening here so far in the book of Revelation. You have this guy named John. We know that he is one of Jesus's 12 disciples. In fact, he's the only surviving member of Jesus's original 12 disciples. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And the reason he's there is because he's being persecuted. Persecution is, is running rampant throughout that area and, and this is his penalty. He's got to be exiled on this island. Well, while he is there, he receives a revelation from God. Now this revelation, we know it just means an unveiling. Something that was previously not known is now going to be revealed. That's a revelation. And God says, John, I'm going to reveal this to you, and you're going to write down everything that you see. And so what does John see? John sees this vision of this victorious Jesus, and he's standing among seven golden lampstands. John says that his voice was like a trumpet. He was dressed in a robe, had a golden sash around his waist, hair and his head was like white wool, and, and everything about him was white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. This is the picture of victorious Jesus. Jesus tells John that these seven lampstands are actually the church, and the, the flame is their witness. And so Jesus is among them, and it just sends this very um, comforting image of Jesus standing with his church. It's like when Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, he said, surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. This is a, a vision of Jesus standing among his church. So before the church is ready to receive this revelation, Jesus needs to say some things to the church. He needs to prepare them for them to receive this unveiling. And so John writes letters. He writes seven in all. These are from Jesus. John wrote them, but they're from Jesus. And they are to the seven churches of Revelation, seven churches of Asia Minor in this area. And each one was similar and each one was different. But the similarities are, are these. Just about every one of these letters had a word of affirmation from Jesus. In other words, Jesus praises them. This is what I love about you guys. Five of the seven letters had words of correction, or some would say a rebuke. So Jesus saying, I like this about you, but let me tell you this, you're really failing in this area. And if you don't shape up, things are going to go very badly for you. Every one of the letters contains some kind of a promise. This is what we look forward to. If you are victorious to the end, this is what you will receive. And so John sends out these seven letters to these seven churches, and now we come to chapter 4, and this is what John says happens next. Let's read it together. Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. What is John seeing? What in the world is he looking at? It's interesting, if you go back to, to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus told John to write all this stuff down, he said something very specific to John. He said, John, I want you to write down what you have seen, and he says, what is now and what will take place later. 
So, so John is like, hey, John has got this understanding. I'm going to write about some things that are my present reality. And then I'm going to write about some things that are off into the future. So when we read chapter 2 and chapter 3, that is the what is now part of this revelation. That is John's current reality and these seven letters to these churches. So it's present day for him. Now we look back on it and it's past tense for us, but it's very much present day, the what is now for John. And then when you get to chapter 4, and what takes place there is all the stuff that will take place later. So an easy way to remember this is basically the first three chapters of Revelation is what's happening in present day for John. And everything from chapter four on is talking about things that will take place at some point in the future. It's the what is yet to come. So in John chapter four, John is getting a glimpse of what will happen one day in heaven. And we find out that John is getting a glimpse of this scene in heaven and he starts describing what he is seeing and it sounds magnificent. Now again, uh, let me just remind you, revelation is language being pushed to its breaking point. John is using words and associations that he is familiar with and he's using those to try to describe what he is seeing, things that he has never seen before. And so what he's describing is this. John sees, he sees this throne and someone is sitting on it. This is John's reference to God. We know that from Revelation, that this moment of the throne and someone sitting on it, we know that that someone is God. And this is how John chooses to write about it. And he describes this appearance like that of jasper and ruby. No one really knows what these jasper and ruby looks like. Some associate the jasper with uh, the appearance of a diamond. Um, we get the word ruby because there must have been a red appearance to it. Either way, John says all of it had the, the colors of the rainbow. This is a very vivid, full, high-definition vision of God in all of his glory and all of his radiance. Honestly, if you want to know my opinion... Knowing the specific details of what each of these things is, like what exactly is the jasper? What is the ruby? What exactly were the colors in the rainbow? In my opinion, I really don't think that's the important part. What is important is that God is on his throne and John is trying to describe the radiance of his glory. That's what's important here. And that's something that we cannot miss. Let's keep reading. Verse four, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, uh, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. So, the next thing that John sees, so he sees his throne, and he sees God on it, and it is, is this glorified image of God. And then, as he looks out a little further, he sees, he sees 24 elders. That's why he describes them. These guys are all dressed in white. They're all wearing golden crowns. Well, who in the world are these 24 elders? There's been plenty of theories about who these 24 elders are. Some say that the number 24 is very significant. And if you take it and divide it by two, you have 12 and 12. 
And so you have 12, perhaps maybe representing the 12 tribes of Israel, or maybe the complete view of the Old Covenant. And then you have the other 12, which may represent the 12 disciples, and in the complete view of the New Covenant. And you put those two things together, and really what you have is this symbolic number symbolizing, in the form of these 24 elders, uh, uh, the people of God. I, I can understand that. That actually quite, that makes quite a bit of sense to me, and there's a lot of people that uh, ascribe to that. You've got to remember, this is apocalyptic literature, and I'm saying numbers and symbols, they, they usually mean more than, than what we might assume. There is a way, actually, to trace the number 24 through the Old Testament and come to um, this uh, understanding of, of, of priestly duties. And in the New Testament, the Christians are often referred to as priests, a kingdom of priests. And so, this is another way of maybe saying this is a reference to God's holy people, believers. We have these uh, details that they're all dressed in white. And this idea of being dressed in white, that's kind of the dress code of the saved in the book of Revelation and in other places in the Bible. Do you remember from last week's message, Jesus sent a letter to the church in Sardis. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? He, he said, I know that there are still some of you who have not soiled your clothes, Okay, so he's saying, it's basically his way of saying, not all of you have fallen away from me. Not all of you have rejected me. Not all of you have chased after all these other things. Some of you have not soiled your clothes. And then Jesus says, those people, they will walk with me dressed in what color? Dressed in white. Multiple places throughout the rest of Revelation, when it talks about people who are saved, they are people who are dressed in white. And so we see these guys dressed up in white and they're all wearing golden crowns. Does, does this image of a golden crown, does it ring a bell from last week's message? You remember at the end of Jesus' letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, he says, to the one who is victorious, in other words, the one who sees this thing to the end, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So this idea that if we go the distance, we will be with the Lord and it will be like this royalty here. We're gonna be with the most royal one that you can imagine. So these 24 elders can be seen as either some kind of rulers of God's people or just many interpret their presence in John's vision as a representation of the church, the family of God. And among this, John sees seven lamps and seven spirits of God. This is most likely just a description of the complete Holy Spirit. That's what many people assume. This is really just a, a, a description of the Holy Spirit is there. We could dive deeper into those things, but let's keep going. Look at verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face of, of like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and, and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Can we just be honest about something? What John is describing, it sounds pretty strange to us, doesn't it? I'll admit it. I read that and I'm like, this is kind of strange. It almost sounds like John is describing something that you might find in that TV show on Netflix called Stranger Things more than he is describing something of God. But, but this, is, this is strange, I'll admit it. These weird creatures, they've got some recognizable features. Remember, John's trying to describe what he's seeing with words that he knows. He sees some things that are recognizable, so he, he describes a lion, an ox, an eagle, even the face of a man. They all had wings. They're all covered in eyes. I mean, we have vivid imaginations. We can kind of visualize perhaps what it is that he is seeing. This is the point of John's revelation that we run the risk of losing perspective. Can I, and I want to give you some warning. This is the point where we run the risk of losing some perspective and we start chasing after some really wild ideas about what it is that John is seeing. I really don't think that's what we're supposed to do here. I really don't think that's the intention when John wrote this down. I don't think he was wanting us to go chase after all of these little details. In fact, I'm just being honest with you. Many people do this. I sometimes find myself doing this. It's really easy to get down into the weeds and start dissecting all the little visuals and try to understand the significance of every single little detail and in doing so, completely miss the entire point. Now, don't hear me. I'm not saying that there's no value in getting into the weeds and digging into all these details. I'm not saying that at all. There's value there. But for our purposes in this series, I actually think that it's better for us to take a few steps backwards and try to get a view of the entire picture. Don't examine every single little piece that we come across, but really take a step back and see how all of those pieces paint this picture of what we're supposed to see. John is trying to describe something to us. It's a very big image of what's happening around the throne of God. And what is it that we are supposed to see? I agree with Mark Moore's assessment of Revelation chapter 4 when he said, the point is not what they look like, but what they do. Now just think about that for a minute. As we have read through Revelation 4 here, the point is not so much what do these things look like, the point is what are they doing these creatures that span the gamut of the wild kingdom, they shout at the top of their lungs, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are they doing? Their task is to worship God in eternity. That's what they're doing. That's what they've been tasked to do, to worship their heavenly father in eternity. And so John is seeing God on his throne being worshiped. And this is something that we cannot miss as we read through the book of Revelation. Everyone in this vision that John is having is taking their cue from these four living creatures. And when these four living creatures, when they worship, that, prop, that prompts all of these elders to also fall down in, before the Lord in worship. And then we get this detail that they take off their crowns 
and they lay them down and cry out to the worthiness of God to receive glory, honor, and power. Many people have wondered, what is the significance of these 24 elders taking off their crowns and laying them down at the feet of Jesus? Well, it's really quite an act of humility, honor, and respect. You know, if these crowns that the people of God are wearing, if they represent accomplishments, if they represent things they've been able to accomplish, or even some, the good deeds of the church, or whatever they may be, those things pale in comparison to what God has accomplished for us. And so when we come to worship God, it has nothing to do with anything about what we have been able to accomplish in any part of our lives. No, no, no. It pales in comparison to what God has done for us. So when they all bow down and worship the one who's on the throne, they take off anything that might be self-glorifying. They take off anything that might point and say, no, you should worship me. No, they remove that. They lay it down at the feet of Jesus and they say, no, you are the one who is worthy. Don't miss what's happening in the big picture. This is complete surrender to God. It's not about us. It's about the one who sits on the throne. John chapter four, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter four, John is describing the greatest worship service known to us. And I read what John writes and I realize that I myself have never experienced anything on earth that can compare to what I'm reading about in Revelation 4. Certainly not in a field outside of Sherman, Texas with the very best worship leaders in the country surrounded by 50,000 passionate worshipers. I have never experienced worship to the level or the degree that John is describing here in this chapter. But as we keep reading, we learn that this heavenly worship service, it is about to get even better. Jesus, the Lamb of God, makes his appearance in, in Revelation chapter 5. And, and what John sees is he sees God on his throne, and God is holding this, this scroll. And this scroll is sealed, and nobody can open it. There is nobody in heaven. There is nobody around the throne who has the ability to open this scroll. And as you read into chapter 5, John is overwhelmed in disappointment and sadness that this scroll remains closed. And he even admits, I begin to weep and cry that nobody in heaven is able to open this scroll. And then it says that one of the elders... One of these 24 elders leans over to John, and I'm, I'm going to completely paraphrase what he says. You can go back to the word and read it yourself. But in my paraphrase of what this elder said, he said this to John. Hey, buddy, don't worry about it. Hey, dry up those tears. Don't, don't worry about that scroll because I know somebody who can open it. So dry up those tears, quit crying, because I got somebody. I'm going to tell you who he is. Revelation 5. Verse six says this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Who does John see? 
John sees the arrival of Jesus Christ. And there's an important detail here. He looks as if he's been slain. This is actually another picture of the victorious Jesus who has been to the cross, conquered sin and death. This is Jesus who paid the price for the souls of people and who has opened up heaven's gates to all who would like to come in. Jesus opens it to them all. Jesus has saved the world and he sees this lamb who has been slain. This is who one of those elders was saying, I know somebody who can open the scroll. Jesus can do it. And we read about how Jesus takes the scroll and when Jesus takes the scroll in his hand, all the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall before the lamb of God and they sing this new song. Look at verse nine. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open it seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God's persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth and then it says like this ridiculous number of angels join in in this singing and when I say ridiculous numbers the Bible describes them like thousands upon thousands and ten times ten thousand I mean just this crazy amount of these angels join in with these four living creatures and these four these 24 elders, and they start singing in a loud voice, verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you think about the big picture of what is happening in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, we really are seeing representatives from every corner of creation. God's people, angels, creatures of the earth and sea. And what are they doing? Don't miss this incredible picture. All created beings, when they see God for who he really is, They praise him with everything that they are. That's what we're reading about. All created beings, when they see God for who he is, they praise him for who they are, with all that they are. You know, I mentioned the name Chris Tomlin earlier in this message as one of the worship leaders at that Passion One Day conference in Texas that I went to out there in that field. Chris Tomlin writes some of the best Christian worship music around today. And in fact, here at New Life, we, it's not uncommon for us to sing his songs right here in our own worship. A few, a few years ago, Tomlin wrote a song that was really popular. I mean, it was on all the radio stations. People were singing it in church. And I think this song really captures the context and feel of Revelation chapter four and chapter five. The song is called Made to Worship. And no, I'm not gonna sing it for you, but I am gonna read some of the lyrics for you. The song starts like this. And and as I read these lyrics, think about what we've read already in Revelation four and five. The song starts like this. Before the day, before the light, before the world revolved around the sun, God on high stepped down into time and wrote the story of his love for everyone. Isn't this the very thing that they are praising the Lord for in Revelation 4 and 5? That he has done this magnificent thing for his people? And then Chris Tomlin in a song goes, he has filled our hearts with wonder, 
so that we always remember, you and I were made for worship. You and I are called to love. You and I are forgiven and free. You and I embrace surrender. You and I choose to believe. You and I will see what we were meant to be. And then he goes on to the next verse. He says, all we are and all we have is all a gift from God that we receive. Brought to life, we open up our eyes to see the majesty and glory of the king. He has filled our hearts with wonder so, so that we always remember you and I were made for worship. There's this idea in this song in today's modern language that captures very much the sense and feel of Revelation 4 and 5. What are we made for? What are we seeing? Who do we worship? What has the Lord done for us? And then the only other part of this song that I want to share with you, Chris Tomlin says this, and even the rocks cry out and even the heavens shout at the sound of his holy name. So let every voice sing out and let every knee bow down that he is worthy of our praise. You and I were made for worship. Chris Tomlin's song captures the heart of Revelation 4 and 5. All creation is made for worship. That even before the creation of the world and before the creation of the stars and the sun and the moon and everything in the galaxy, before sin had even crept into existence, God had a plan for us, built out of his love for us. Without God, there is no us. Without God, there is no this. And when we realize the majesty of God, there really is only one response from us. You and I were made for worship. John is getting a glimpse of this reality, how all created beings, when they see God for who he is in Revelation 4 and 5, they praise him with all that they are. Can I ask you a question? What would John's description of God on his throne, the victorious Jesus who, who gave himself up as a ransom for the world, and all the created beings worshiping, what would that image mean to Christians who were living every single day of their lives under the threat that at any moment they could be arrested, dragged into court, told to denounce Christ, or die? What would that mean to Christians who have had to watch loved ones and friends and family all die for their faith to get this picture of Jesus on his throne, the victorious Christ? What would that mean? Personally, I think it would mean a whole lot because when you understand who God really is, your enemy looks pretty puny. Once you get a glimpse of God and you see that he occupies his throne even to this day, that he is still in complete control, you begin to realize that there is nothing that could ever overcome our Heavenly Father. Can I ask you another question? If all of this is true that we're talking about today, and I want you to know my personal conviction with all of my heart is that it is 100% absolutely true. So if it's all true, that knowing that an all-powerful God is still on his throne and that this big, powerful God out of his deep love for us stepped out of heaven and he walked this earth, he walked among his creation to give them, the, the creation he gave very life to, that he walked among them and then he allowed them to take his own life only to come back to life victorious 
And in doing so, open heaven's doors to all who will come in, who want to, who will be victorious till the end. If all that is true, then what role is worship in your life today? And I don't mean, you know, worship only in the sense of the kind of worship we do at church where we gather together and we sing. That is definitely a form of worship, but worship is much broader than that as well. My question is, what role does worship play in your life today? If we were made to worship and all God's creation is made to worship him, what role does worship play in your life? Worship is not so much how we often think about it as something that we go and do. Worship is really more at the core of who we are. It is a daily acknowledgement that God is still on his throne. It's an awareness that comes out of prayer and scripture that he is Lord and Christ is Savior. And our lives will reflect those realities in everything we do, everywhere we go, everything we watch, everything we say, every relationship that we have. It's all out of worship to our heavenly father. It guides everything. And when our lives, when we live these lives of worship, you know what else it does? It drives out fear and replaces that fear with great anticipation of the day of the Lord when we will join this heavenly picture of worship and we too will be around the throne of God with all creation, worshiping our heavenly father. Boy, I tell you, when we live lives of worship, there is nothing that can take our joy. There is nothing that can destroy us when we see God for who he is and we worship him with all that we are. Let's not miss the big picture of Revelation 4 and 5. The Lord wins. He is victorious. We are made to worship. Let me pray for you. Dear gracious God, I just thank you for this beautiful picture, this snapshot, this glimpse of what heaven will be like and a description of what we were created to be. And Lord, we look so much forward to that day when we will all be together, when all of the stresses and all the troubles of this world are long behind us and we are standing with you in perfection and we are realizing and living in the glory of your son, Jesus. And we are experiencing all of the things that the Bible describes of what eternity will be like. Namely, Lord, when we gather together in those moments in heaven and we all bow down and worship you, God. Lord, I pray you help us, even right now, have a little taste of what John was seeing. A little glimpse, Lord, of what is to come in the future. But even more than that, Lord, I pray that you will give us as a church family the resolve to be faithful, the resolve to be victorious and to stay with you to the very end. Lord, to see this life through and to be encouraged that you are still on your throne. That Lord, to, to know that you're on the throne, that truth, that reality, to guide us and shape us in how we live our lives and interact with others. Lord, may our worship of you guide everything that we do in this world in great anticipation for what is to come. Lord, in closing, we just pray and thank you for giving up your life for us. You truly are the lamb who was slain to pay the ransom for the sins of the world. That Lord, you have allowed us to taste your glory.
and the ability to live in your family and be with you together. Lord, we are so grateful. We cannot say thank you enough. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we go today, I wanna to invite you in a time with our worship team to worship our Heavenly Father as if we are having a, a, a Revelation 4 and 5 moment. Would you sing with our team with all of your heart this wonderful worship song of our Heavenly Father?